Today I am uh, kind of stiffed and out of kilter, and I know that some would say that's my perpetual state. <laughs> but today I mean it literally, I'm kind of leaning left, not politically, but <laughs> literally, uh, because of maybe some yard work or more likely a dog that pulls me in one direction or yanks me. Uh, you know, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm trying to stand straight and I'm leaning, okay? So if, uh, I, I say that, so if I wince or grimace, it's not because of anything I see in you or it's not even by what I say, it's just there might be some tweaking going on there. Um, uh, if you recall, we started a series about passing faith on to younger generations with an analogy of three chairs. Uh, the first chair uh, represented believers who were committed with rock-solid faith. And there's a tendency that in subsequent ger- generations uh, that the next one might very well be in court, in, excuse me, in church, hopefully not in court, and, uh, uh, and that they you know, might be believers, maybe not, but they're less committed, less zealous. Uh, And then they have children, but their children see that their words don't match their actions. And hypocrisy being a scourge, they don't want anything to do with Christianity. So now let me remind you, this is not a universal law or whatever. It's just a tendency that we see some places in Scripture. And being in the first chair is not perfection, but rather a position, an attitude, a way of life in which if another Christian were to shadow you for days, they would eventually be convinced that you are a Christ follower. Now, this uh, series called Head to Heart has been about different aspects of being a strong first chair person, a parent and grandparent in particular. And since the beginning of last year, we've looked at various aspects or facets of passing faith on to children and grandchildren and others who are watching us so that they can have rock-solid faith in a lost world. And I hope that those topics have been helpful. But like any endeavor, whether it's in sports or arts or military preparedness, trades, medicine, or public speaking, we start with, and we often must repeat the basics. Now, if we have flirted with or found ourselves in the second chair with less commitment, and it is our goal to be in the first chair as individuals and families for the sake of our loved ones and others in our circles of influence, we need to remind ourselves constantly of the basics. So uh, let me please uh, reassure you that we're not preaching here some sort of formula to earn salvation. Having the right motivation is always vital to honor God, and our goal should be to apply Scripture in our daily lives with a heart to know and serve God and to be more like Him as a light to others. Now, Christ-like character is more caught than taught. That does not mean it is not taught. We learned in Deuteronomy 6 that, you know, we're to be doing that all the time in every facet of life to those watching us. And we know that if parents simply throw their kids out with no training, intentional training, I think we all know what is likely to happen in our 
current postmodern or what I call the post-reality culture. However, if we want to be effective in passing on faith, young people must see our faith make a difference in our lives. This is in addition to simply hearing it from parents and grandparents and siblings and coaches in Sunday school and Monday school teachers. Our lifestyle examples play a huge role in young lives. And Christ is our example of leading by example. In John 13, it says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. So today, we're going to wrap up this series and go back to the basics that apply to us all. And please recall that even if you're single or you have no progeny at this time, we are all called to be disciples, uh, to, to disciple others, rather, and be disciples. And those basics give us the foundation to carry out that mission to a lost world. Now, uh, as a preface, I'm going to assume a couple of things here so you don't think I've forgotten this. The first is that to move into the first chair, you must know that you are saved. A person can do all the right things, but if your eternal security is in question, you need to remember that it's not what you and I do for God, it's what he did for us. We are fallen. We cannot keep his law. We all fall short, and by his perfect justice... We all deserve eternal death. Yet, he sent a Savior who sacrificed to satisfy that justice so that only by his grace, only through our faith, not our works, can we be sure we have eternal life in him. Secondly, we will assume that to get into the first chair, a person is a part of an assembly of believers. Mike made this point last week. As I just mentioned, nothing we do, including sitting in a church, will save us. An unbelieving castaway stranded on an island for life can be saved. Yet, Christ followers are not to forsake assembling together. God gave us life for a purpose, and that purpose involves being part of his family within the body of Christ, his church. Lone Ranger Christians, I do not believe, can get to the first chair, at least not very easily, not only because they need the support of others, but walking with Christ involves serving and ministering to other believers. And that will take us to our first point about how we get to the first chair after one more point. Uh, before we consider that point, uh, let's also look at something we all need to set examples. Has anybody here ever made a New Year's resolution? Okay. I won't ask you about results, but those promises to self are notorious for not being kept. And most are set aside within a few weeks, if not a few days. One of the most common is weight loss and exercise. Now, some buy expensive 
equipment or join a health club. And I'm not criticizing those decisions. Christy and I have joined a club. And Keith finds a health business, I think it's called Fitrition, has helped a number of my family members who frankly needed that help. But with many, those desires to get in better shape will fade when it becomes inconvenient or other more enjoyable alternative activities interfere with the exercise plan. Now, while the desire is essential in any endeavor, it's usually not sufficient to carry out a resolution long term. That takes a thing called discipline. Discipline is developed when we conclude that the practice or lifestyle we commit to is important enough to develop. You know, I had the distinct advantage of uh, playing some sports in high school, and then Steve Iliff and I played on the KU Rugby Club. But more likely, we got greater influence for, uh, for him. It was in this Army Special Forces and for, for me in the Marine Corps to develop discipline in certain areas. And it was made clear in basic training that without discipline, you were not going to be a Marine. This is why we're talking about the basics today. In order to be a disciple, one must de develop discipline or discipline, okay? So let's consider some of those disciplines. Uh, uh, what are the steps that a person who, after an honest assessment, concludes that he or she is sitting in the second chair and you want to get into the first chair? Not a comprehensive list or guarantee, just the basics so that we all, sh that we all should be doing and there are probably many more that I can't mention today. The first one on your sheet there is serving the Lord. Now, serving the Lord with air quotes can be a cliche without much substance. It can be something like patriotism, a great feeling or devotion, but not necessarily involving any action. But at the most basic level, what does it mean to serve? Those who serve are actually doing something, right? Not just talking about serving, and certainly not just having somebody else serve them. To serve the Lord, we must take into account what God's Word says about that subject. And when we talk about serving the Lord, the desire is essential but may not be sufficient if the area of service is not important enough to develop that spiritual discipline. If other things distract us, we may have the desire but lack the discipline to carry on. So the first sub-point under uh, serving is to cast aside whatever keeps you from yielding to God. Um, we've got to determine if there's anything keeping us from a full commitment to the Lord. If we find something, that distraction must become unimportant to us. This is called prioritizing. Very simple. There are many things in life that distract us from fellowship and serving God. You know, one of those is anxiety or the cares of the world. And Jesus in Matthew 6 gives us some perspective on this. He starts with an exhortation that we be not anxious about the basic necessity of life, food, drink, and clothing. He reminds us that the Father takes care of birds and lilies. And if he does that, he's going to take care of us. And being anxious adds nothing only makes it worse. It says there in verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, we know that God is not a genie granting us our every wish as we sit on the couch. Paul reminds us that if you don't work, you don't eat. If we do not provide for our own, we are worse than unbelievers. But needs, worries, and fears can keep us from yielding ourselves to service and prevent us from sitting in the first chair. So the one thing we should not do is worry. But that's easier said than done. Uh, the next sub-point is, I stole, uh, be faith with its sleeve rolled up. Some of you may recall that that was on a lot of the signage for the rescue mission. I love that motto. I don't know if it was a motto, but I love that phrase. Uh, one of the most important passages for Christians to understand is out of Ephesians 2, where Paul makes it clear, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I mentioned earlier, you cannot earn salvation by what we do, because it is a gift. You don't earn gifts. However, that does not mean good works are not an essential part of the life of a Christian. Quite the contrary. Paul gives that balancing truth in the very next verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, Paul states explicitly that we are created for. Our purpose is good works, and that they should be a part of our daily walk. Now, this should be so apparent that Christians should be known for caring for others, the sick, the poor, the lonely, the oppressed, the persecuted. The greatest example, of course, of servant is none other than Jesus, who said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Uh, if the sinless second person of the Godhead came down as a man, humbled himself to be a servant, washed the feet of sinners, and even die for all of us sinners, what should we be doing? That means we need to look for opportunities to serve in our neighborhoods, our communities, and beyond. There are many organizations that supplement the church, like the Rescue Mission, like Doc Sazo, and, and uh, children's uh, families, children family services. Lifeline children's services. Thank you, Christy. <laughs> uh, but we have opportunities right here in the body called Lion and Lamb uh, we need volunteers, as I speak, as, as Larry mentioned, we need volunteers for the Doxazo camp. We need volunteers every single Sunday morning. So please consider that. Please consider that. that's a way to serve. Third sub-point is to serve as a friend in the name of Jesus. When we actually do good works of service, how will others know we serve because of Jesus? Do we make that clear to them? How can we make that clear? In John 15, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my name, it may be given to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So when we serve, we should make clear that we serve as friends of Jesus. We should always ask ourselves, what is my motivation for serving? You could do wonderful things for the wrong motive. You know, hospitality is a great thing, but it's probably not as important as worship. Martha complained to Jesus. He said, Mary's just sitting at your feet. Well, I'm doing all the work for hospitality. And Jesus redirected her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, doing the Lord's work can be genuine and worshipful, but it can also become an end in itself. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, when I serve, I feel good? I feel good? Well, you know, that feeling may be coming very subtly as a result of praise or affirmation from others. And it's, if so, it can gradually take the place of our worship for God. Matthew 25 tells us about the final judgment and the sheep will be separated from the goats. And he will tell the sheep that they've inherited the kingdom prepared for them because they gave him, Jesus, food, drink, and clothing, companionship when he needed it. And then they ask him, what? When did we do that? And he said, the king will answer them, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And the opposite, of course, is the eternity of the goats who didn't serve and sacrifice for the least of these. When we serve others for the right motivation in his name, we are serving Jesus, our friend. Second main point of discipline here is to cleanse out covetousness. Now, while a first chair in our metaphor is characterized by commitment, the second chair is revealed by compromise. Second chair Christians tend to focus on things or activities other than service, love, and prayer for others. Whatever that something is, it takes priority and starts the trajectory of their lives. These other priorities can run the gamut from outright besetting sin, like porn, to something innocuous, maybe stamp collecting. Now, while we can see the clear destructive power of the former, the common good activities can end up distracting us from things that are more important. I'm not saying it's wrong to participate in activities like sports or good movies or stamp collecting, but each has a priority. And if that priority is above serving God and others, we should reevaluate our use of time because time is a limited resource. It has been said that it is the good things in life that crowd out the best things in life. Christian who does not choose to serve God and others instead may pursue pleasure 
or prestige or possessions. And the more appealing something is to us, the more time and energy we expend to acquire it. For time's sake, we're only going to address possessions and wealth here. Now, uh, speaking to any group, it's always, when you're talking about something that's likely to offend, it's really helpful to start with a reference point to guide us, something like the North Star, okay? For Christians, this would be a scriptural law or at least a principle, okay? Now, let me say up front, money and wealth are not evil. One of my sons was discouraged uh, about how he was working to help people improve their extravagant homes with expensive stuff that, in his opinion, they really didn't need. His good intentions was that the money that they used to purchase that chandelier or that electronic gizmo could have been used to help others. And he wasn't sure he wanted to continue doing work for rich people. I reminded him that not all, but some Christ followers have been given greater wealth by God so that they could help others. They were helping him by giving him work. And some were actually supporting Christian ministries. Here's the balance. Paul, in encouraging contentment with whatever God gives, explains that those who desire to be rich, desire to be rich, fall into temptation, not sin, but closer to the fire, into a snare and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many pangs. 1 Timothy 6. So if we see that it's not wrong to acquire wealth, nonetheless, wealth brings temptations and snares if it becomes a desire, a craving, a focus, a distraction from serving others and God. When it does, it can be called coveting, okay? And you might recall that coveting is one of the big ten, okay? Reaffirmed in the New Testament, thou shalt not covet. So how we spend our time and our money is evidence of our beliefs and priorities and reveals the chair in which we are sitting. You know, in the United States, we are so affluent that most of us, if not all of us, have far more than most of the people in the rest of the world. And it's considered a sign of success. Uh, this may even cloud our view of greed as a sin. But Paul takes us back to reality like a cold water splashed in your face. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If our focus is on acquiring, that is an idol. Wealth and stuff are not the problem. The problem is that we can allow them to distract us from God. The problem is chasing more wealth as a higher priority than God and others, including our own families. The problem is taking what God has generously entrusted us and hanging on so tightly that we cannot release a small portion to help others. The problem is becoming independent of God, believing the lie that we do not need him because of what we have accumulated on our own. At least that's what we think. The problem is thinking that wealth can fill our emptiness 
when only God truly can. But there's another facet about wealth. There's a problem of thinking that if we do certain things, religious things, kind of a nod to God, he will give us our desires for material wealth like a good genie. Earlier I mentioned 1 Timothy 6 where Paul addresses contentment. The lead-in to his words on contentment focused on false teachers who create conflict and envy with a depraved mind and lack of truth, teaching that, quote, godliness is a means of gain. Okay? You all thinking? Prosperity, gospel. Okay? Instead, Paul's view is that godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. For if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. God gives more to some than he does to others. That's just reality. If you remember the parables about the investment of the talents, it tells us that we are to use whatever he gives us and be content. The third point or discipline is to clean out known sin. You know, we take for granted that Christ's sacrifice on the cross paid for our sins, past, present, and future. All true. But have we come to grips with how God views our attitude and response to our own sin? We talk about confession a lot, but there is that lingering question about whether we really confess all known sin. C.S. Lewis says that, we are all to become little Christ as believers. To do that means uncovering sins, repenting, and making things right to restore relationship with God and others. Not easy, in fact, difficult, if not painful. When we actually ask God to cleanse us, he may reveal sins that we had no recollection of or, or realized. And it's going to be quite a humbling experience. And Paul addresses sin and cleansing in 2 Timothy 2. He says, the Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready to for every good work. So we see that this process involves both turning our backs on sin and cleansing ourselves in order to be useful to God for good works. Hebrews 12 further explains this process. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Here we see that cleansing involves not only turning away from sin but running the race of life with endurance following the example of Jesus. What is that example? Romans 12 continues. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We're to persevere through the pain of confession. We are to hate the sin that set us back, and we are to expect persecution and look forward to eternity in his presence. Both passages assume that Christians are to cleanse themselves and pursue righteousness. This cleansing and pursuit 
is a threshold to personal righteousness. Now add to that the additional benefit of the liberation it brings to our conscience. 1 John 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. However, great to have an however here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The more we desire that righteousness, the more motivated we become to get sin out of our lives and to pay whatever it costs to be cleansed and to have a clean conscience. Finally, in 2 Chronicles 7, uh, it says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive them their sin and heal their land. So what does it mean to seek his face? The next point is we are to grow closer to God by listening daily. You know, habits are a part of life, and they actually help form our character, which is the sum of our individual habits and qualities. Uh, for the mere Christianity class, uh, I was just trying to put the technological things together last night because Steve is, out of, is not here, and he sent me a, a treatise on habits, about 10 pages long, and I will summarize it with this. Uh, habits have been described as our second nature. When, it, when an habitual liar repents and sees the importance of being trustworthy, his whole character has changed and will, over time, regain the trust of others that he has lost. At salvation, the Lord draws us into his family and calls us to change into the image of Christ. As Lewis would say, to become little Christ. As we grow or mature in our Christian walk, we should exemplify the traits of Christ that we see love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our day-to-day habits, our disciplines will help develop in us an anchor for our lives. If we wish to move closer to God into the first chair, the single most strategic change that you can make is to place your first priority on daily quiet time listening to God. The idea is not to have a routine for its own sake, but to develop discipline because you desire an intimate relationship with the Father. If you're devoted to Him, you choose to dedicate time to Him daily. No one and nothing should take precedence over time with Him. So some practical steps. I think maybe these are on your handout. Just choose a private, quiet place. Uh, set a convenient time. Scripture talks a lot about rising early in the morning. Some people can only do it at night. Whatever works. But find a consistent time. Lay out a simple but regular plan that you, so you always know what you're going to do. And you could change that. It's okay. Do it annually or do it every few months, but not daily. It won't be a plan if it's changed daily. Whatever you choose, Make God's word the core of your private, quiet time. Now, reading the Bible is the most essential part of listening to God. 
The Holy Spirit uses God's Word as His principal tool to transform our lives. And you can use a devotional guide for a while. Maybe you can read through the Bible, perhaps with commentaries or other apps. If you want to read for greater understanding, you could use a study Bible and take time to read the notes. Uh, reading through the Bible uh, in a year or two is great. Uh, simply reading ingrains the Word in your spirit. However, I think it's better to try to read for comprehension, especially those difficult passages with the help of Bible scholars that have set before us uh, their own investigation, even if it takes a little longer. The bottom line is what you've heard over and over and over here is read your Bible, okay? Luke 8 uh, gives us the parable of the sower, uh, and which explains the effects of taking in God's word seriously or not. Uh, he explained the parable to his disciples, uh, and he said that the seed that was being cast is the word of God. And then he talked about how seed casts along the path and on the rock and among the thorns. They don't work for a variety of reasons. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So to get into or remain in the first chair, we want to be good soil with an honest and good heart so that we can bear fruit. Spending regular time in the Bible listening to God is not sufficient by itself, but it is essential to reach the goal. Having or not having this discipline consistently in your life will speak volumes to the young who are watching you and me. Fifth point or discipline is to talk to God through prayer and praise again daily. Of course, prayer and praise should be our habits, our lifestyle. Easier said than done. In fact, some people have said that prayer may be the most talked about and least practiced of all the Christian disciplines. It is our, the most basic tool to renew our relationship with the Lord daily. It is how we connect and contain, it contains the language of relationship between a life and the giver of life. It's how we access God's supernatural responses to our requests and pleas for life's impossible or emergency situations. Now, we don't always understand how God is answering because our perspective is tiny. He has the big picture. At times, we see his prayers, his answers to our prayers. And at other times, we must trust that he works all things out for good, including those things about which we're praying. Certainly, uh, when we see that our prayers are answered, our confidence in prayer is bolstered. And our prayer life grows. And when people think that their prayers are not answered, it may be because they do not see God's bigger picture. His answer might be no, because our prayers may not be in accordance with his bigger plan, also known as his will. God reminds us that our confidence that God hears our prayers and gives us our requests is when they are, those prayers are according to his will in 1 John 5. There's another reason the prayers are not granted. Many of the New Testament promises about prayer are conditional, meaning God will answer based upon our attitude and relationship with him. Some of these, I think, are listed. 
Proverbs 15, the Lord hears the prayer of the righteous. Matthew 21, whatever you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. John 15, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And finally, James 5, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. So from God's perspective, how might he view the practice of prayer in your lives? Do you pray consistently or just when you've got an emergency? Might inconsistent and infrequent prayer be an indication that prayer dependence on God is really not a priority? If you want a better prayer life, make it a habit, like setting a time to pray at a minimum every day and then pray at other times when helpful. Once prayer is a regular part of your quiet time daily, it is helpful to know what to pray. I don't know. It just makes sense. There's a lot of different systems out there, a lot of acronyms and that sort of thing. But I think it's helpful if we check the owner's manual. Maybe what Jesus said about prayer. And he actually said, pray like this in Matthew 5, followed by what we call the Lord's Prayer. He did not say, always pray this prayer, but as something we sometimes see in movies about Christians. Rather, he said, this is how to pray. And what, what do we see? First, we see reverence and adoration. We come in with a humble and quiet spirit, and we can pray something like, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's a good place to start. Our praise and worship are generally not genuine unless we are walking close to him in daily quiet time. It may include our expression of his power, his righteousness, his justice, and his love. But throughout the day, we should be praising him for his creation around us, his compassion and mercy towards us, and his character and faithfulness. Next, you see submission to his will. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see dependence for needs Daily, give us this day our daily bread. He wants us to depend upon him daily. It's hard to pray for daily needs if you're not praying daily. We see confession and seeking forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we see protection from sin and evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And certainly we should pray, pray for specific needs. It's easy to pray for general, you know, world peace or, you know, uh, you know all, the, all the poor people or whatever. But pray for your responsibilities, decisions, and, meeting, and meetings. And, and make concrete requests so that you can see a definite yes or no. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill and prepare you with strength, wisdom, and leadership for service today. Thank God for his blessings and the specific gifts that he has given you and ask him for humility in use of those gifts. Pray for your family, church members and leaders, co-workers, government leaders, and others. Pray scripture. Okay, Mike mentioned this last week. And when, when Christy and I pray together, she does this regularly. You can personalize like Psalms and Proverbs by making the words apply directly to yourself, and it'll have a greater impact for you, I think, if you do that. You can sing God's word. Do you remember scripture songs? That's a good thing to do in praise. 
Pray that you will become more like Christ, that you will become a little Christ. And that takes us to our last point. It is to pretend. Now some would say, that's rather childish. And you'd be right. You see, Christ taught us to pray to our Father. That's a pretty strong implication that we are His children. Another insight from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. His way of putting it is that believers or Christ followers should try to become little Christ. Christ's perfection is beyond us, so we cannot be the same as the Son of God with a capital S, but we are called to become sons and daughters of God with a small s and d. This pretending is not about faking spirituality or anything. Lewis calls that bad pretending. But the point he makes about good pretending is first that that is the nat- one of the natural ways that people learn. Children pretend to be grown-ups. A little boy will pretend to be a man by playing with trucks and tools and materials to build or a policeman or a soldier to develop his role as a provider and a protector. A little girl will pretend to be a loving and nurturing mother with a doll and manager over her own dollhouse. Now in our class, we question, do kids do that anymore? So if you've got little ones, you need to think about them actually playing and not just looking at a screen. But this applies to adults as well. Uh, Steve pointed out in class that when we train in the military and we shoot blanks at each other, we're actually pretending and learning to engage in actual battle. Any kind of training or drill is pretending, preparing us for reality. But pretending can also be less intentional and more spontaneous. In 1947, Corrie Ten Boom recounted her experience in Ravensbrück, a Nazi death camp. She was asked to return to Germany and talk to a church group about the topic of forgiveness. After the talk, a man came up to her and said, you mentioned Ravensbrück. I was a guard there. And I was a cruel guard. Will you forgive me? And he did not recognize her, but she recognized him as someone who had abused both her and her sister. This taking of his hand, she said, was the hardest thing she had ever done. It took all the power she had to pretend to show grace and forgiveness. And here's what she said. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. As I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. Now that's true Forgiveness springing from pretending. Lewis says this is more than your conscience telling you what to do. Unless it's scarred, we all have a conscience as a passive guide that is stronger in some than others, where it's stronger more times than others. 
But if we pretend to be like Christ, to be little Christ, Lewis puts it this way. The Christ himself, the Son of God, who is man, just like you, and God, just like his Father, is actually at your side and is already at that moment beginning to turn your pretense into a reality. It is more like painting a portrait than like obeying a set of rules. So in effect, Christ is an artist creating in us not his perfect self, but something very much like him when we pretend to be like him. It is this kind of pretending and allowing Christ to mature us that our best examples are placed before those watching and building their own rock-solid faith so that they, too, can sit in the first chair. As the worship team comes up, if we can put up a, a verse here that we'll all stand and say together. Okay, here we go. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Only let us hold true.